Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question Community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCom, with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering, where the question is asked through original arts and music, as well as thought-provoking presentations. This is Frederick Tamagi. Let's give it up for Jonathan one more time. With songwriters, it's always a contest to see who can write about emptiness the best. So. Okay, so I've discovered something obvious, if it's possible to discover the obvious. We love our personal technology. I mean, we really love it. Uh, we love it in all its forms. Desktop, handheld, mountable, wearable, drivable, virtual, uh, and imaginable. Now, you'll notice that I deliberately used the adjective personal to distinguish it from technology in general, because general technology, frankly, is kind of difficult to love. Just like a great cheeseburger uh, is much easier to love than the greedy industrial food complex that made it possible. Uh, if general technology means the underlying technological foundations, the complex supporting infrastructure, the precisely engineered functionality, uh, and the unbelievably intertwining operations that make our personal technology work, then it's not surprising when we talk about general technology, the word love doesn't immediately spring to mind. Like they say, we generally don't want to know how the sausage or the burger is made, right? Now, we only love that our personal tech works, not how it works, or even more importantly, not why it works. Uh, and as we've shared in the community before, why is always the question that takes us further down the path. So we can admit that we really don't love everything about technology, but sit us down in front of the cheeseburger latest iPhone, the newest 4K ultra-high-definition TV, uh, Oculus Rift virtual reality, Google Glass, or an autonomous vehicle, and we fall in love. It may even be a condition worse than love. I may run the risk of offending lovers of love. Because our relationship with our personal tech frequently resembles something closer to cult-like or even dangerously addictive behavior. Now, I recently watched a whole series of YouTubes people staring at their phones while they walked into open manholes <laughs> or fell down a flight of stairs or even walked into the path of an oncoming vehicle. These are like screenshots of that. But I watch people get hit by cars, sometimes with fatal results. Now, abrupt and not so romantic conclusions to this new love affair, to be sure. Now, is it a surprise to anyone that we've been forced to pass distracted driving laws to quench the fever of this love affair? It's not a surprise to me, because uh, uh, I have to admit, I partially suffer from this love sickness myself. 
Now, I realize that no one in this community, in this room, is tech-obsessed enough to walk into an open manhole. At least, I don't think so, right? But let me ask you this. How many of you regularly walk around holding your phone in your hand? Don't have to put up your hand. When you're anywhere waiting for someone or something or otherwise unoccupied, how many of you automatically default to looking at your phone? When you're with other people in a waiting room, a restaurant, even on the street, what percentage of the people you're with are on their phones in some capacity? Now, here's a love question, if there ever was one. How many of you spend time in bed with your phones before you go to sleep, and then sleep with your phones nearby? Actually, I do that, and that's not a picture of me, but it could be, okay? Now, it's not strange or creepy, I don't think. <laughs> it's just our new and intimate reality with personal tech. How did it become so intimate? More importantly, why did it become so intimate? So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about this new reality and prompt you to consider the possibilities of why it's become so intimate and so personal. Oddly enough, this very personal discussion will have to begin in the most impersonal place that you could think of, the cold, hard, impersonal world of data. Okay, so now I will plead guilty to the past crime of boring you with statistics but fair warning, out of necessity, my life of crime will not come to an end tonight. The reason that I could not reform and go straight is that my research into the world of data led me into the next world of big data. Now, discovering this next world spawned a visceral emotional reaction in me, not love, mind you, precisely because of the statistics. Big data is mass marketed as a completely useful, Neutral as mathematics, obedient as the family dog, powerful as our fingertips, cool tool of the sophisticated modern person, right? But my research prompted a question about whether big data or we were the real tool. Now, before I, I share these boring statistics, it might help you to know exactly what big data really is. Big data is the term used for the combined global database resulting from every digital interaction of every available data type, okay, text, images, video, audio, from every available data device. That's big data. PC, mobile, TV, other media devices. It's the combined database. Now, this combined global database is too massive, it's too fluid, too changeable, too complex, too exponential, and too new to be managed or understood by a traditional small data methodology. Its sheer size is so unbelievable that it almost feels theoretical. Yet big data is a real thing. It is a real thing. And it's getting bigger all the time. Okay, so you gotta ready yourself to be bored and then maybe a little disturbed. Okay, here we go. I'm gonna share some big data's new metrics with you. This is big data's scale. Okay, starts out with the word exabyte. Okay, one exabyte, which is kind of the language of big data, is equal to one billion gigabytes. Now, this is not on the slide, but uh, the next level up is one zettabyte, which is now becoming a, a part of the language, part of the lexicon of big data. One zettabyte is a thousand exabytes, that's one trillion gigabytes. Every single day, 
the world generates about two and a half quintillion bytes, that's 18 zeros, okay? Or two and a half million exabytes of data, two and a half billion gigabytes. Two and a half exabytes is the equivalent of two and a half million one terabyte hard drives per day, okay? That's just like the one you have in your home. This data was placed on a one gigabyte flash drive, every single person on earth would receive three flash drives per day. Every single person. Every two days, we generate as much data as we did from the dawn of civilization to the year 2003. 90% of all data ever produced was generated in the last two years. I didn't know this, so when I found it out, it's so massive it seemed theoretical to me. That it wasn't even real, okay? This is big data's growth rate. The global data generation rate is increasing at a rate of 10 times every five years. Okay, so in 2013, 4.4 trillion gigabytes of data was generated. By 2020, not that long from now, it's estimated that the total data generation yearly will reach 44 trillion gigabytes. That's the equivalent of 40 years of our current rate reached in just five years. Okay, the next line is pretty interesting. It gives you an idea of how quickly we've started to generate data. In 1992, kind of, you know, pre-digital era, uh, the world was generating only about 100 gigabytes a day of data. In 1997, it went to 100 gigabytes per hour. 2002, it went to 100 gigabytes per second. Okay, so now we're starting to roll a bit. 2013, not that long ago, it moved to 20, over 28,000 gigabytes per second. And just a couple of years from now, it's estimated that we're gonna be at 50,000 gigabytes a second of data being generated in the world from 100 gigabytes a day. Now we're generating far more data than we can store ourselves, okay? Currently we're generating about 1,000 exabytes a year of data. The estimated local storage capacity, when I say local storage, I mean your hard drives, DVDs, CDs, SDs, flash drives, other media, including books, okay? The total world local storage capability is about 400 exabytes. And we're generating 1,000 exabytes a year. Okay, so there's a huge gap. And the gap is widening. It's, it's widening exponentially. This is the part that will sort of kick off what I'm talking about. This is big data's future. In 2007, 92% of all global data was stored on our local devices, hard drives, DVDs, CDs, etc. Okay, that's in 2007. This year, 70% of all global data is still stored on local devices. Okay, so the stuff that we generate, this is not the stuff we generate, it's the stuff we wanna keep. By 2020, only 30% of all global data will be stored on local devices. And by 2025, less than 10 years from now, less than 5% of all global data will be stored on local devices that we can see and touch and feel, okay? So there are some obvious questions. Where is all our data going to? And where is it being stored? And maybe more importantly, why is it being stored? So, big data is indeed big. It's growing bigger and bigger every day, and we collectively are the reason. Our love affair and our practical dependence on tech 
are the driving forces that feed big data. And it's those forces that have caused the now impossible gap between the amount of data that we now generate and the amount of data that we can effectively store and manage. Now, I know that most of us who consider ourselves tech savvy, and there's a few people in this room that feel they are, uh, are comforted by our extra micro SD cards and flash drives and laptop hard drives and big external hard drives if we can afford them. But many, many people around the world are gradually shifting to a more convenient and less expensive alternative. Many of you have already noticed a shift in your own behavior. And just like a conventional love affair shifts from flirtation to dating to relationship to commitment, so goes our love affair with data. Instead of worrying about the limitations of our hard drive, uh, our email attachment size, or our smartphone memory, uh, we've been given access to a seemingly unlimited reservoir of personal data storage. It feels, uh, in a word, liberating. Okay? This remarkable, liberating new reservoir is an entirely new digital industry that's been created to accommodate, analyze, and exploit the unknown scale and potential of big data. Okay? This new industry has a name. It's called the cloud. This is Jonathan Ferguson. This exact idea for years before I did, um, I wanted to write a song from the point of view of a murderer and make everyone feel sorry for them. So I feel like I did it. What's that? Yeah, I did it first though, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but uh, I actually, the, fir the first line is actually something that happened to me, like the first part of the first line, and I just thought it would make a cool opener, so I thank my slippery bathtub for helping me write this. I put my foot through the bathtub Looking for water Well, it was only two days ago I used it to clean up the slaughter And in the porcelain tiles And the mirror I smile Hiding everything that I know All that I'm hiding I'm looking to flood Where did the water go?
Through my reflection, I say, See you in hell. Because I'm far from his advocate, I'm the old man himself. And as I run my face on my shredded smile, I Realize, but I'll never know. Where did the water go? exactly is the cloud? It's kind of a wonderful term. It's a nice term, isn't it? It evokes feelings of expansiveness, gentleness, beauty, freedom, uh, even spirituality. No one really knows where the term cloud actually originated. Okay? Some say it's a tribute to the old-style computer flowchart where individual functions are depicted inside a cloud-shaped bubble. Others say that it's a reference to how comic books and other graphic illustrations depict a character's thoughts suspended in a bubble or a cloud above their heads. I saw a few of these, I really like this one, you know. Robin, what have I done to you? Yeah. Now, this is the way that we usually see a graphic representation of the cloud. It's kind of friendly, puffy, companion in the sky, to which we can smoothly connect with our personal devices and enthusiastically live out our digital lives. We spend any time emailing, texting, calling, searching, connecting on social media, watching videos, shopping, or exchanging files, we are most likely interacting with the cloud. Now, the cloud is not the internet, just as a city is not a road, okay? The cloud is quickly and inevitably becoming the metropolis or the megacity of the internet. Now, for closet tech geeks among us, and there's not so closeted tech geeks here, Okay. The cloud is an internet-based digital repository based on massive shared resources for data storage, computing, and processing. This digital repository increasingly resides in giant data centers or server farms located all over the world, ranging from 400,000 square feet 
to over one million square feet. That's 20 football fields, okay, to give you kind of a sense of scale. Each of these giant data centers contains 50 to 80,000 individual server units, all networked with other data centers operated by owners of the cloud. They are often built in remote locations for reasons of land costs, proximity to major power sources like hydro dams and power plants, closeness to fresh water resources for temperature control. And some are even located in order to experiment with new renewable power or cooling technologies. This is a slide of two data centers, okay? The one on the left is Facebook's Arctic Circle data center, okay? They built this in northern Sweden. It's about half a million square feet in, in size. They did it to take advantage of the temperature, the ambient temperature, year-round around the Arctic Circle. Parts of this data center are literally encased in ice, okay, to maintain the temperature. The picture on the right is a prototype of Microsoft's undersea data center prototype. Again, to take advantage of the cooling technology of being underwater, as well as experimenting with tidal power for generating electricity. This is taken, they won't say where it is, it's taken somewhere off the coast of California. This is just a prototype. Another interesting example of the cloud is the NSA data center in Utah, okay, which covers an area of 1.5 million square feet. That's 30 football fields. And it's estimated conservatively to have data storage capacity on the order of 10 exabytes, okay, that's 10 billion gigabytes. Now, to, to give you an example of what that means, 10 billion gigabytes is enough storage to record every single phone conversation, mobile or landline, in the United States 24-7 for one full year. Now, some other reported estimates for NSA data capacity are up to 10 times larger than what I just said to you. Okay, so are you a little intrigued and even a little bit disturbed yet? So for the purposes of the question, an alternative and non-technical way to describe the cloud today would be to identify it as an emerging, exponentially expanding digital oligarchy that has the unique power to both create the demand and satisfy the demand in our ever-intensifying data-dominated lives. And who exactly are the members of this new digital oligarchy, this new destination to which all the roads of the digital world are steadily converging? Okay, you're probably already thinking this, right? Because uh, it's not a big surprise. These oligarchs won't surprise you because just like the NSA, they aren't a secret, okay? But just like the NSA, they are very private and completely opaque. These are the top four cloud operators. I was really surprised. The number one cloud operator is Amazon. They're 29% of the cloud. They have 30 data centers and 3 million servers. Microsoft is second at 12% of the cloud. They've got 20 data centers and 1 million servers. IBM, kind of a sleeper. Uh, they're 7% of the cloud. They have 23 data centers around the world, and the number of servers they have is unknown. They won't tell anybody, okay? Google is fourth, bit of a surprise to me, 6% of the cloud, 15 data centers and 1 million servers. Now, these four companies currently control 54% of the worldwide cloud, 
and are quickly outgrowing all the other smaller players that represent the remaining 46%. So most experts predict that five to 10, but no more than 10, megatech companies will eventually represent the entire global cloud. Now, if you're wondering where Apple and Facebook, because naturally you think, you think Apple and Facebook, if you're wondering where they currently reside in uh, the cloud crowd, you may be surprised. Until quite recently, Apple's iCloud has actually been a lowly tenant, renting cloud storage capacity from Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Okay? But in the last three years, Apple has recognized, finally, the historic implications of the cloud, and they're now spending billions to catch up to become a full member of the cloud ruling class. They've recently committed to building three giant data centers, totaling two and a half million square feet, okay, at a cost of $4 billion. This is being done to enable them to discontinue supporting Amazon, Microsoft, and Google and their infrastructure. Apple is now committed to becoming one of the cloud's oligarchs, and they will be. They will be. Now, Facebook, I was surprised at this too. Facebook is actually not involved at all in the cloud. Uh, and they're focused mainly on building giant data centers for their own exclusive use, right? Building them next to the Arctic Circle. Because they have 1.7 billion monthly users. Now, just to compare, Google only has a paltry 1 billion users a month. So they're quite a bit smaller than Facebook. Now, Facebook is also preoccupied. They're currently preoccupied with a minor project called internet.org. And it's a project to provide internet access to every single person on Earth. Now, not coincidentally, this humanitarian plan that Facebook is on will grow their user base exponentially because every initiative that they're starting around the world to provide internet access includes an automatic Facebook access. That's how you get onto the internet, is through Facebook. So Facebook, uh, even though they're taking an unconventional strategy, they will be a future member of the cloud oligarchy. They just will. So within the next 10 years or less, virtually all of the world's data, our personal data, as well as all business and government data will be stored on the cloud. Right now as I'm speaking, this is another number that blew my mind. Right now, today, close to 90% of all mobile data is already being stored on the cloud. Our love affair with our phones has already gone way past the first date. Now, the intense irony of the cloud is that the companies that dominate it are basically our, our favorite personal tech buddies, okay? Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, Google, Apple, Facebook have been wildly successful at attracting our interest, captivating our attention, and finally tethering us to their digital ecosystems. They are the dominant icons of convenient online retail, the best operating systems and features, enterprise expertise to get businesses and governments to adopt the cloud, easy access to the world's knowledge base, an unprecedented electronic device addiction, an amazing virtual community with the entire world. It's as if these seemingly unrelated friends uh, of ours, fierce competitors and rivals in the outside world of tech are really like unique and separate doorways into the same big house, the unseen inner world of tech. And the hungrier and more demanding that we become for their friendship and their wares, the bigger they make their house to accommodate our visits 
and make us feel safe and at home. Now, it's equally ironic that just like any kind of intense hunger, compulsion, or addiction, our gigantic devotion to data keeps us happily oblivious to the fact that our personal digital lives are increasingly being lived inside their house, under their gaze. And ultimately, 100% of our relationships, our finances, our possessions, our history, our images and videos, our art, our citizenship, our most private communications will provide the ongoing building blocks for their big house, the cloud. Now let me ask you this. As you understand more of what the cloud is and who owns it, does it still seem like a big, beautiful house? Or more maybe like a big, beautiful prison? Or, or even a big, beautiful laboratory? This is part one of this presentation. Part two will be continued in the next podcast episode. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the Question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary starting at 7. You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCom. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions.